yeah. Oh, it's really nice to be with you all. <laughs> Masks and all. <laughs> this is my first time in the hall with yogis and since we closed for COVID, so it's kind of exciting. <laughs> okay, there were a lot of questions. <laughs> and uh, uh, doubt, it's doubtful that we'll get through all of them. <clears throat> There were a few which were similar, so I thought I would just read them together. <laughs> I brought my glasses and left them in the staff room. No, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> For someone with a tendency to over-effort, being simple and easy can be not simple and easy. Any tips? How does one stop thinking about the end of the river and put their paddle down? In other words, how do you stop making so much effort? Do you have any advice for how to relax into and trust the unfolding of the process? So that's not uncommon questions, you know. And as I'm sure most of you know, uh, the Buddha gave a lot of emphasis to exploring exactly <coughs> what right effort means. You know, and you're probably familiar with the example he gave of tuning the strings of a lute. And if it's too tight, have to relax. Too loose, have to tighten the strings a bit. <coughs> so this is an ongoing um, <coughs> Adjustment that we all make in our practice in, in monitoring uh, the quality of our effort. And it's not like we find the right balance and then we have it. You know, we'll find ourselves going through cycles and we were over efforting or we were just too relaxed and spacing out. So most of these questions were more on the side of what to do when we're making too much effort, when we're what I call efforting, you know, or struggling in the practice. It actually points to uh, a deep understanding of what the practice is about, uh, which we often forget. And it's highlighted um, in one line that is found often in the suttas, in the discourses. And it's a line that, in the discourses, when people would hear it, they'd often get enlightened. Or sometimes they said that line is an expression of their enlightenment. So this is your big chance. (laughs) Uh, listen carefully. And <laughs> it's so simple that people really miss it. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. I had read that a million times, and it just seemed like an obvious statement of impermanence. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. 
but a couple of years ago, I was on retreat, doing a self-retreat, and that line came into my mind. But because I was on retreat, rather than just reading it, you know, in a book, it landed very differently. So instead of being an intellectual appreciation of, oh, yeah, everything's impermanent, it kind of settled right into the midst of my unfolding meditative process. I was on retreat, I was sitting intensively, that thought came, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And so I actually applied that understanding in that moment. You know, and of course it's not hard to comprehend that. That's a f- it's easy to understand and it's even easy to apply if we remember. But then my mind did something really interesting which had quite a profound effect on my practice. So I'm sitting, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And then my mind went to, therefore, there's nothing to want. And I'm talking now in the meditative process. Because if whatever arises is also going to pass away, therefore there's nothing to want. Because whatever it is that I might be wanting in my practice will also pass away. And it was really interesting what happened in that moment with the nothing to want. I could feel my mind drop back from what is a very common leaning into the process. It's a, and this is really common. I see it in myself and with many, many yogis. We're with this moment in order for this moment. And, you know, it could be something as simple as the in-breath in order to take the out-breath. Or it could be with the breath in order to get concentrated. Or some kind of in order to or some leaning into. And then in that moment, there's nothing to want. The mind dropped back from any leaning. So it was, it was just so vivid and not complicated. You know, it was just this very simple, simple little thing. And then... I reflected a little bit that right there is the essence of the practice. And this is what I think, for myself and many people, we miss. And that is, the essence of the practice is non-craving. You know, when you consider the Four Noble Truths, the truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha is craving, The end of dukkha is the end of craving and the path. So right in that moment of there's nothing to want, and feel the mind drop back from wanting. Just right there we have a taste, even if it's just momentary, of the third noble truth. We've experienced to some extent, but but, uh, a profound extent, a touching of the liberative potential of the mind. 
which the Buddha pointed to, the end of craving. And I just find it interesting that even for experienced practitioners, and I see this in myself, and as I say with many others, we're often practicing for some experience rather than for not craving. <laughs> Do you see the difference? I mean, and so that's where we can get caught up in this over-efforting. If we have some idea of reaching for an experience, wanting our meditation to be or to have a certain experience, that's, that's a wanting in the mind. It's a craving in the mind. There's nothing to want. There's no craving. The mind is really at peace. So one thing you might try, just, you know, if this resonates with you at all, um, just when you're in your practice and if you feel like you're in you know, somewhat of a flow of experience, see what happens if you just maybe call to mind whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Therefore, there's nothing to want. And, but not, not, not as an intellectual exercise but, but actually applying it, <laughs> applying it in your practice at, at that time. And then notice whether you, whether you can feel or you see what I'm describing as that dropping back rather than <clears throat> leaning into. Uh, it really changed, changed my practice a lot because it was just a powerful reminder of what the essence of the practice is. Uh, <clears throat> the end of craving. That, <laughs> that's what we're practicing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. <laughs> Can there be anger? I'll say one more thing about <laughs> about uh, over-efforting. It just came to mind. Uh, and I'm not sure because I haven't been here to hear the instructions, so I don't, you may have heard this already. Uh, but even in just being with the breath, you know, just a simple basic being with the breath, uh, Notice the difference between when your mind is zeroing in on the breath and when you're feeling the breath within the whole body. Uh, and and I've been teaching, and maybe some of you have heard me, uh, give the instruction of just using the phrase, there is a body, you know, as a larger framework we settle ourselves within that larger framework, there is a body. And then there's simply being with what arises within that larger framework without narrowing the focus. Now, there can be times when the narrowing of the focus is useful and helpful, but particularly if there's over-efforting, there's a tendency to do that more when you're zeroing in on it. 
as opposed to just allowing the breath to find its own rhythm because we're not interfering with it because we've given ourselves a broader, a larger context, namely the whole body. Is this clear? Okay. Uh, that also, it, that made a huge difference when I, when I started practicing in that way, and I got a, I've gotten a lot of feedback from yogis that found it helpful. There's an interesting question that... Uh, interesting question. <laughs> Can there be anger without ill will or aversion? In other words, can anger ever be wholesome? So, uh, there are two levels to this question, I think. First is to understand, in my understanding of kind of what's behind the question. You know, very often... As an example, this doesn't stay put. <laughs> I have to learn whole new teaching skills. Uh, very often, anger may arise, for example, in response to injustice, you know, or something that we think is, is wrong. And so our response the anger may arise as a response to that. In that situation, I think it's helpful to see the anger as a messenger. The, that emotion arising is actually giving us a message, right? This is not right. But that's the point at which we can either get lost in the anger and identified with the anger and maybe vent the anger, which is not skillful, or understand that that emotion is arising as a message in response to a certain situation. And if we can, if we can understand the message and let go of the anger, then it gives... Uh, our minds have a greater possibility of actually addressing the situation with more skill. Right? If we're just caught up in our own reactivity, uh, that's generally not the most skillful way of dealing with the situation or trying to address the situation. Uh, so I think kind of in contexts like this, to see the anger you know, as, as an emotion telling us something and then we learn from it. Uh, I think that's a useful way of understanding anger. You know, and the potential uh, to transform it into something that is really effective. Another question, and I had this discussion with uh, Bhikkhu Analyo on a walk, because it's come up before, and so I, I asked him also whether, okay, in that context, 
could we think of anger as not being unwholesome? And I think that he responded in kind of a way of understanding the classical Buddhist teachings in that anger is always unwholesome, always unskillful. So for me, um, I think it's possible to hold both of these perspectives. I don't think we have to choose. We can understand, you know, based on the Buddhist teachings, that anger is always unwholesome. And I'm going to, there's a little footnote to this also. And at the same time, until we're free of anger, at the third stage of enlightenment, it's going to arise at different times. So even if we know that fundamentally it's an unwholesome mind state, but if we realize it is going to arise, can we understand it in a way that we are using it skillfully? So do you see the possibility? I don't think the two have to be necessarily in opposition. One has to do with, okay, this is an emotion that's going to arise in certain circumstances. How can I use it most skillfully? And how can I understand it most skillfully? And at the same time, realizing, yeah, at a certain level of enlightenment, it's not going to even arise anymore. And there'll be other motivations for taking skillful action. Um, so that's that's how I understand it. And uh, so the 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 other the the footnote Yeah, and one of the problems in communication is that people can use the same word to mean different things. And so unless there's a lot of clarity about what a person means by the words they use, there's often just a missing. So as an example... One understanding of anger would include the intent to, to, to do harm. You know, and we see that cer- certainly in many manifestations of anger, you know, there is that intention to do harm. Well, that to me is clearly unskillful. You know. But then is the question... Is there some emotion that arises that kind of looks like anger but does not contain that energy to do harm but it's more... I don't know what another word... Righteous indignation or some other word. So this would take a very careful examination of our own minds when something is arising that we're calling anger to really examine. And and understanding that the classical teachings, they use that word and they say, yeah, this is one of the unwholesome roots. 
So with that understanding, that, that could actually be a motivation for us when what we're calling anger is arising, to really, to really look at that mind state, investigate. You know, investigate for yourselves, well, what's involved in this? You know, and um, certainly if one aspect would, of the, would be of the doing harm, that would be a clear signal to me that it's unskillful. But maybe there are gradations, you know, and so this is just an invitation to investigate. Um, but as I say, that there are ways to understand, even if it's unskillful at all levels, the fact that it will still be arising, how can we use it skillfully and not erupt in flames? Uh, so this is important because uh, the anger of doing harm, motivating, you know, doing harm, is really, I mean, it's, it's a source of a huge amount of suffering in the world. Uh, you know, uh, years ago, and I was just reminded of it recently, uh, that when I would be talking about sila in the precepts, I would, I would just make the suggestion or the uh, it was uh, I don't know the right word uh, the idea. What would it be like if everybody in the world undertook just one precept? That is not to kill, even not to kill just human beings. That's all. There, this world would be an incredibly different place. You know, so this, this intention to do harm does harm. You know, and so we want to watch in our own minds. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> you don't have intentions to go around killing people, but we can do harm in a lot of different ways. You know, and so that's something to watch for. How can we, ex- some of these were similar questions. How can we explore the arising and passing away of phenomena in our sitting and walking practice? How do, f- how do you know if you're in the territory of seeing the arising and passing beyond, beyond the conceptual level? <coughs> so. There are different levels of seeing arising and passing. Um, so there can be a very clear seeing of it, you know, for short periods of time. But that phrase, seeing arising and passing, also refers to a stage in the progress of insight, in the unfolding of the practice where the mindfulness and concentration really have developed to quite a good extent. And so the momentum of our noticing is very strong, very high, and there's just this tremendous clarity and lightness, and really the mind is luminous at that time. 
where we're just in that flow of seeing the rapid rising and passing of phenomena really effortlessly because there's so much momentum. So that's kind of the classical uh, understanding of the stage of insight of arising and passing away. But I found a way of really glimpsing that, but deeply, uh, even before that stage, uh, where we may not have built up that really powerful momentum we were just in the flow of it, but we can bring the wisdom mind, the uh, in the in the factors of enlightenment. The wisdom aspect is called investigation of dhammas. Right? So it's that investigative mind. So I have that, that, that mind is very strong in my mind, sometimes to my detriment. <laughs> because I've been told by certain teachers, especially when I was trying to practice in concentration, concentration practice, they said, oh, you have too much investigation. <laughs> because I was always, <laughs> instead of just staying right on the object. <laughs> uh, but at other times, it's really served me because I've just, I've discovered a lot in very ordinary circumstances. So, one way of really seeing clearly the pretty rapid arising and passing of phenomena is to take a few minutes, and it can be sitting, it can be informal walking meditation, or it could be just in going for a walk, or in moving about, moving about the building, holding a very simple question in mind. And that is, moment after moment, what is being known? That's all. So just, what's being known? And so in whatever we're doing, we're just paying attention. We're settled back. We're not directing the mind in any way at all. It's very receptive, very open. And we're just in this very receptive mode, noticing what is being known moment after moment. And because we're not doing anything, it's not at all difficult to become aware of, oh, a sensation, you know, a sound, feeling of the air on one's face, you know, uh, a thought, a movement, just moment after moment, something is going to be arising. And if we're just holding that intention to acknowledge, you know, what's being known, moment after moment, you will see that these objects are coming and going very quickly by themselves. So it's not like we have to do anything to make things change. The very nature, the very nature of phenomena, whatever, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And when we're settled back and not trying to direct anything, it becomes very clear, very obvious, you know, and, and effortless. It's, it's really an easeful thing to do. Uh, what I would suggest is 
if, again, if this suggestion is of interest to you, to do it just for five minutes at a time, ten minutes at a time. Because if, if you think, oh, I'm going to do that for an hour, the mind's going to lose energy, it's going to get bored, it's going to, you're not going to be able to do it, really. But for five minutes or ten minutes, there can be the energy behind that investigation, you know, which I think will, I think will really uh, uh, spur your interest. And you will see, you, you will have a direct experience of arising and passing, you know, of phenomena. Uh, and it has another, kind of has another uh, benefit. And this goes to kind of a deeper way of understanding selflessness, of non-self, which for many people, you know, of the three characteristics is the hardest to... We can understand impermanence easily, we can understand dukkha pretty easily, but non-self is counterintuitive. But there's a intimate connection between insight into impermanence and non-self. Because when we're really seeing the impermanence you know, in a, in a somewhat sustained way, even for short periods of time, nothing lasts long enough to be self. You know, and so we, we, have a, we, we actually have a felt sense of selflessness in the exercise I just described. You know, okay, what's being known? And then this... You know, just things coming and going from all the six sense doors. Uh, and when we're in that, I think you will really have a sense of the selfless, impersonal nature of the whole process. Uh, so it, it can illuminate a lot, uh, you know, by doing this. Okay, can you please talk about the difference between consciousness at the sense doors and consciousness? Sometimes in a deep concentration, I sense consciousness beyond the body. I become consciousness. Okay, so there's some subtle points in this question. As you know, in, in the teachings, consciousness is not one thing. Consciousness is arising and passing in each moment. And so our experience is really a pairwise progression of knowing an object. So the knowing an object arises together and passes away together. So knowing of a sight, arising and passing, knowing of a sound, arising and passing, knowing of a thought etc., through all the six sense objects. So the first thing to understand is that consciousness is not one thing. There's not one consciousness which is aware of all the different objects. That consciousness itself is arising and passing. It's that pairwise progression. 
I'm going to take a little detour. <laughs> and I didn't even know if it's one of the questions in the pile. But what I learned from my teacher, Munindraji, my first teacher, when people would ask him questions, he would just answer whatever he wanted to answer. <laughs> Whether it had to do with the question or not. <laughs> so I learned that from him. <laughs> it's, it's a great teaching skill. <laughs> but it is related. <laughs> but this is just a little sidetrack into an understanding uh, or a description of or way of understanding what non-self means. Because as I say, this is, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy thing to understand because our conventional way of being in the world, of course there's a self and an I and a you and we relate to one another in that way. So what does it mean to say non-self? So one of the examples that I've been using recently is uh, that of a river. You know, if, if you say we're going to go down t- to, to the river, sit by the side of a river, we all know what that means. But what is a river? A river is a flow of water. And we give a name to that flow of water, river. So river is a designation for something. It's not a thing in and of itself. There's no river as a thing independent from the flow of water. Right? So river is a designation for this flow. Self is just like river. Self is a designation for the flow of changing phenomena. What's really happening, as I just said, is a very rapid flow of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. It's happening really quickly. Uh, And so it gives the impression of there being something fixed, but one of the insights of inside meditation is we see there's nothing fixed, right? That, that our experience is this flow of changing phenomena. And we simply use the term self as a designation for that. So when we say non-self, it's just reminding us that, that that term is a concept pointing to something. It's not a thing in its own right. It's a designation for something. And we can use that. It's not that we have to get rid of that word. It's, it's very useful for communication. But what happens is we've got so accustomed to the designation that we think that the self is a something and that somehow in our practice we have to get rid of it or we have to, I don't know, blow it up 
<laughs> something. But that's because we're confusing the fact that it's just a concept or just a designation for something with being a thing in and of itself. Is this... Are we together? It doesn't seem complicated to me. (laughs) But we're very conditioned to be identified with this notion, with this idea of self, instead of looking and understanding, no, this is just, it's just a word pointing to a flow, just like river is a word pointing to the flow. Okay, why did I get off on that? (laughs) So consciousness at the center... So the flow is this knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. At the sixth sense, as was mentioned. But sometimes in deep concentration, I send consciousness beyond the body. So what can happen when the mind becomes quite concentrated is that sometimes we lose all perception of the body. And all that remains is knowing. There's, there's just the knowing. And Mahasi Sayadaw, you know, who's kind of the grandfather of uh, uh, this whole lineage, he, he particularly pointed out this time in practice. And this, is, this generally happens when the mind <coughs> has really settled in and is quite concentrated. Uh, where the whole felt sense of the body disappears, there's just knowing. And Mahasi Saido has uh, taught and written that at those times, this can be a very blissful state. You know, it's like, it's, in a way, it's a relief to, to let go of the uh, more gross perception of the body and just, just awareness, just knowing. So he, he said that this is very seductive and that people can really delight in this. But it still is part of the flow of conditioned phenomena, it's, but it's a very refined. It's just the knowing. And he said at that time, <clears throat> one has to note, whether literally note or notice, uh, knowing, knowing. So the knowing itself becomes the object of mindfulness. So that, so this last part, uh, last sentence here was, I become consciousness. That's the danger, right? In that very refined state, we can start identifying with the consciousness, with the knowing. Yeah, I'm the one who's knowing, right? And that identification is just another... It's a trap, you know. That, that's where we get caught. That's where uh, we're creating the felt sense of self in the identification, whether it's with consciousness or anything else. That's where the felt sense of self comes about. It's when we're identifying with whatever. It could be a thought, it could be a sensation, but in this case of the question, it's with the knowing. Um, So it's to be aware that these very refined states 
do arise, can arise in the practice. But whatever arises, we have to stay mindful of whatever it is so that we're not identifying with it. Uh, Because the... uh, Certainly in this tradition of practice... Uh, the final, the final piece, or we could say the highest piece, uh, goes beyond consciousness, goes beyond awareness. Uh, but that's the subject of a, another few hours. <clears throat> what advice might you have to share around meditation and the last chapters of life? And how has your practice changed as you have reached your 70s? How has your practice changed with the small and large diminishments of aging? In particular, the mind which is more vague, forgetful, with less energy. Well, I certainly have been noticing. some effects of aging. But mostly it's been good. Really good. There's a lot less um, there's a lot less wanting you know, and I was going to say ambition, but not in a. I was never super ambitious, but still, when I was younger, things to do, things to accomplish, you know, like that kind of, which which was good, you know. And IMS is one product of that. <laughs> but but you know, as as I've gotten older, it's like oh, just you know, one can relax. So that that energy, you know, to. To accomplish, uh, just really kind of has cooled out a little bit, and so for myself anyway. And I don't know whether you know other of you uh, at this stage of life feel it as well. But there's really just a settling back and, and more easeful with the unfolding, just as it is now, with a lot more uh, uh, inspiration from practice. Because there is the acknowledgement, you know, to myself, well, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's not unlimited time. Not that there ever is, but it gets gets even more, you know, apparent as one gets older. And so this, for me, there's this wonderful combination of kind of feeling at more ease and relaxed, and more interested in practice, you know. So then there's the question. Because, you know, at different times, whether it's because of physical health problems or uh, just maybe mental diminishment in some way or other, and could take different forms. One really important uh, understanding, which... 
is so helpful at whatever age one is. So this this is not limited to you know, being uh, the later stages of life. And that is, and, and I hope you really take this in, we can be mindful of anything. And so the mind's confused. You know, it's not clear what's going on. Confusion. Confusion. We just make a big frame around, oh, there's confusion. In that moment of noting, noticing, oh, confusion, in that moment we're not confused. We are actually being mindful of that current mind state. But it's so common, oh, confused, thinking that because we're confused we can't be mindful, that's the mistake. Or, I mean, sometimes, uh, I don't know whether, I can't remember whether in this group of questions, but often questions come up about, you know, how to practice for dying, you know, or being, you know, the, the dying process of being really ill. In the same way, even before it may be a question of the dying process, I find a very useful practice is whenever I'm not feeling well. You know, I'm sick with something. <coughs> it doesn't have to be a major thing. Uh, but when I remember, I take those times of not feeling well to be practice for dying. Because, I mean... None of us know really how it's going to happen in the circumstances, but there's a good chance we're not going to be feeling well, you know, in one, in one way or another. So if we've practiced beforehand, oh, I can be mindful of this. It's not pleasant. It's not, it's not that it makes it pleasant. It's being mindful of unpleasantness. But again, it's creating a big frame. You know, so instead of getting upset because we can't concentrate in some pinpointed way or you know, some idea of how our practice should be. Remember, we can be mindful of anything. So that, that's really a huge, a huge help. Uh, and to apply that with whatever, whatever mind states or body states are coming up. Do you know... Uh, and this is an example I've used often. Uh, are you familiar with the paintings of Jackson Pollock? You know, <laughs> you know, these massive, big paintings, swirls of paint all over the place. And at first it just seems really chaotic, you know, chaotic energy. And if we were trying to trace it all, it would be impossible. You know, there's just too much going on. But what happens? You put a frame around the picture, you hang it up on a museum wall, and then you can look at the whole painting from a place of ease, where you're not caught up in the frenetic energy of it, but because we have a big frame, we're kind of seeing the whole, we're seeing the totality of it from a place of openness, a place of balance. And... It's just really helpful to remember that in the practice. 
whenever you think, uh, I don't know, whenever you have doubts, you know, about your practice, I can't do it now, I can't deal with what's happening, whatever, whatever form it takes, see if you can remember, okay, can I step back? Put a big frame around it. Agitation. Or even, suppose you have a sitting and your mind is just wandering for the whole hour. You know, maybe you're judging yourself, oh, my practice is no good, whatever. It would be possible just to sit back, oh, wandering mind. Just lots of thoughts. You, you're becoming mindful that that's what's happening, rather than struggling with some idea that you want it to be different. And of course, the ability to do this, to settle back and just open up to whatever the experience is, actually serves to settle the mind. You know, so, um, okay. So, Greg told us he considers his mind his best friend. And then in parentheses, hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. (laughs) Well, it does a little bit, but... (laughs) Would Would you say the same regarding your mind? If so, can you say what that's like for you? Uh... I think a fruit of the practice is that our minds become our best friends. But we don't often start that way. (laughs) And one teaching which Munindraji, my first teacher, would often say, said, the mind can be your best friend or your worst enemy. And I think we've all had experiences of that. You know, and so this, this suggests a lot to me. First, and this is, this is part of my investigative tendency, I think it's... Uh, it's just, I find it just so interesting to really look into the nature of the mind. Not, not, not particular content, but just what the mind is, this capacity to know, right? the capacity of being aware. And then everything we become aware of, and then all the ways we relate to what we're aware of. You know, and so just to see the mind as this completely dynamic, endlessly transforming energy, which can be used for the greatest good or the greatest harm. A few years ago, and maybe some of you may have seen this, it was a Ken Burns documentary on World War II. It was a very powerful series. I think it was 10 
or 12 episodes, but really well done and very powerful. I was watching it. And at first I was just really interested in the historical dimensions of how it all unfolded and what happened. But after a while, because there were so many hours of watching and it was, it was so well done, instead of seeing it that way, I began to see everything that was going on and it was horrendous, you know, like, I don't know if this figure is accurate, but it's, it's like 50 million people were killed or maybe it was even more than that. I just, you know, horror, the horrors of the concentration camp, I, you know, it's, it's horrendous worldwide. So at a certain point, instead of just seeing the historical aspect, I just began to see everything as the manifestation of greed and hatred and delusion. Everything that was going on was coming from those forces in the mind. So, you know, the fear and the the hatred and and all of it, and then all the actions that that came from that. And so, again, it was a reminder, just as the Buddha said in the first verses of the Dhammapada, you know, all is mind-made, you know. Uh, It all comes out of the mind. And to see for ourselves, and this this is one of the really fascinating things about meditation practice, we get a front row seat at understanding the mind and everything it does. And we see all of these forces within ourselves. It may not be to the point of you know, the destructiveness of that war, but we see many manifestations you know, of greed or hatred or fear or whatever it may be delusion, and we see the potential for the greatest good. You know, when we really see in our own minds and then by extension in everyone's mind, you know, the potential for generosity and kindness and love and compassion and service. And So there's a line from a samurai poem, and this was an anonymous samurai poem. Uh, and the one line in it that, that has always stuck with me, he said, I make my mind my friend. And I love that. I think that in one way is a wonderful description of meditation practice. We're learning to make our minds our friend. And what that means is being open to the full range of what the mind is showing, showing us, and then learning how to relate skillfully to whatever it is. You know, and so when we see the unwholesome aspects, we, we learn to see it and let go, to let it pass through. If we get caught up in self-judgment about that, or we hate seeing it, or hate it that it's arising, we're just strengthening more aversion. You know, so that's not a skillful way. So we learn to, to see it all. Yeah, and whatever the unskillful patterns are, we see them, we're mindful of them. They come and go. Everything has the nature to arise will also pass away. And we see the wholesome qualities of mind. 
and we learn to cultivate them. Uh, and so I think we come to a point where we can really say, you know, our minds are our best friends. Once, once we have really learned, you know, through a direct seeing and, and engagement, it's kind of an intimacy with our own minds. Um, Aging. Okay, the further I go in my practice, the more estranged I can feel at times to those not on this path, which leads to some delusion of separateness, yet the differences seem so real. How can I be more inclusive without disregarding my experience? That question will take another hour to. <laughs> oh, there's so many different levels to this. So, a uh, few things that are coming to mind. One is something which I've heard the Dalai Lama say very often, kind of in his way of being, responding to the world, uh, is just the bottom line foundation of his understanding is acknowledging that everyone wants to be happy. So whatever whatever one's practice one is doing or non-practice or however they're living and even when they're doing things that seem really terrible, it's coming off sometimes from a misguided place of what will produce happiness, but everyone wants to be happy. So if we can understand that, then it's possible first to appreciate the different ways that people go about doing it, and there are a lot of different wholesome ways of doing it, and so we can appreciate that in other people. They may not be on this path, but they're following their own their own path, you know, for finding happiness in their lives. Uh, and when somebody is doing something that we really understand is not leading to happiness, that is harmful, instead of anger. Uh, we can really have compassion, you know, because it's like you see somebody, and especially when one understands kind of the law of karma and the fact that our actions bring results, you see somebody just heading towards a cliff, you know, and going off, and through their unskillful actions, if we see it in that broader context, do we get angry or do we feel compassion and just want to do something to try to, to try to help? And sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. So I just want to share one, one little story in this. Um, 
So I don't know whether uh, you're familiar with uh, uh, Father, Gregory, Father Gregory Boyle, who was a Jesuit priest in L.A., who has done just remarkable work with the gang, the gang kids in L.A., and he, he started a whole big organization that's hugely successful. And his books are quite amazing. It's just, they've, it's like a transmission. And he's right there in the middle of it, dealing with horrendous violence. I mean, these gangs, they're killing each other and killing bystanders. I mean, it's, it's terrible. But he's right there, and he's done remarkable, remarkable work. So he's written two books. The first one is called Tattoos on the Heart. Um, and if you haven't read it, it, it was a transmission for me. You know, it really transformed something. So the, the essence of his philosophy is love no matter what. Just love no matter what. And that doesn't mean condoning what you know, these people were doing. But we got love no matter what. So at the time I read it, I was in the midst of kind of a rather intense interpersonal conflict that had gotten pretty convoluted and it was difficult. It was one of the most difficult things that I've been through, you know, interpersonally. So I was right in the middle of this uh, when I read the book. And love no matter what. And suddenly it touched me. It touched me, okay, okay, so with these other, the person that, you know, the problem person. <laughs> okay, love no matter what. It doesn't matter. And then my mind would just rush right back to, <laughs> you know, being the lawyer arguing my case of why I was right and they were wrong and just all of that. But that, no, love no matter what. Love no matter what. But, 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 but as I sat with it and I just let it really enter in, there was a real transformation when I realized that that space of love no matter what was so much more open and free than being caught in being right in the conflict. Right? So it's like, okay, well, what do, do I want to just stay being right in the imprisonment of that? It was a contraction, you know, and it was very upsetting, and I was not a pleasant place to be and then, no it doesn't it doesn't matter love no matter what and just that change of or that understanding it just opened up a new way of being with the situation that was tremendously freeing um So what was this in response to? 
How can I be more inclusive without disregarding my experience? Uh, so that, in, in some way, that phrase encapsulated for me what inclusiveness means. Right? We were not caught up in the differences, and even, and it doesn't mean we don't respond. You know, we can respond and to whatever the situation is. But where is where are we responding from? What's the place? Is it love no matter what? Or is it, I'm right and you're wrong? You know, uh, which I was. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't serve me. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was realizing that. And, and that book really helped me understand that. Okay, this, we could go on for hours, but we won't. <laughs> Uh, Why don't we just sit for a moment or two and let all the words settle.